0: Or listening to the running public from marathoners to mud runners we all have the same goal get to the finish line faster that's right this podcast is for you guys the running public before we dive into anything kirk you should just repose that same question to him that you asked me
1: oh maybe okay well, first of all, I feel outnumbered. There's two bald dudes and one guy with hair here, and this is unusual for me.
2: You know, I do a lot of podcasts with bald guys. Actually, I don't, it's like a PT Dude. and like a fitness nutrition thing. Yeah, I don't know. I I I've been on a number, and we've we've joked about the the lack of hair for uh for, for it there. But yeah, outnumbered here.
0: I like this. This is a change of pace. Usually, it's all fully haired people. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I it's, it's very efficient. I love my bald head, actually, there.
1: <laughs> well, don't gang up on me, you guys, all right? You and your high T. Leave me out of that, or whatever the cause is for your baldness. Hey, we were talking before you just hopped on. Dr. Doug Adams is who just hopped on with us. I'm supposed to be running a 5K under the lights, maybe, next Wednesday. I'm aiming to, I'm 40 years old and I'm aiming to break 15. So I'd like to run 14 and change as a 40 year old. Be a big accomplishment for me. But yeah, weather's looking, it's a, it's five, six days out. So who knows? But it might be like in the nineties. Is that a fool's errand
2: to be attempting something in such heat? So there's a couple things and actually some studies and some things you can do with this. Cause I just dealt with this. One of my professional runners was just over, he was running in Germany and he just ran a 5K for German national championships, and it was 90 degrees out. So the, this was a very, a, a very recent conversation I just had <clears> with <throat> one of my pro athletes. And so, a couple things. One of the things that we know is that there's an ideal temperature for running, and it's around 55 degrees. Every degree cooler or hotter than that is about one second per mile more. At, Effort. So if it's 10 degrees hotter, if it's 65, you might run 10 seconds per mile slower than you would if it were that ideal 55 degrees at the same effort level. So that doesn't mean that you can't run that speed. It just means it's going to require more effort to achieve that above that optimal condition. Now, on the flip side, there is a cool study that actually looked at – and it was at the Houston Marathon, I believe, where they had people – and I don't know if you guys have heard of this one before, so stop me if you have. But they had everyone eat – or they drank slushies, like 7-Eleven Slurpees or something before the, the half marathon or the marathon. And it cooled people's it cooled people's core temperature by about a degree and a half, and their performance was significantly better for that group than it was for the group that didn't do it. <laughs> so there are some things that you can do to combat the heat, but um, yeah, that's hot, and it's it's going to definitely be harder and take more effort. Um, there's good evidence to show you know how much, but um, it doesn't mean it's not doable. It's just how well you do too, like how acclimated are you to the heat. Do you normally run in those kind of temperatures? Um, that has a big impact on it too. You know, or are you a big salty, heavy sweater? Uh, you know, there, there might be some other considerations of how you personally respond to that as well.
0: You gave a very different answer than I gave. <laughs> Which, what was your shot there? <laughs> I said my PR was at 91 degrees. Go run. Yeah, give it a shot. Right. Yeah. What I took from yours is that I would have been thirty seconds per mile, uh thirty seconds faster over the five K. Yeah. Under the same conditions, yeah. 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 So, so thank you. I'm gonna start yeah. claiming that as my five k PR. Little asterisk on it there, like uh...
1: <laughs> We live down rabbit holes on this podcast, so we're just gonna stay on this one for a second then. Perfect. Yeah. So is that universal? Like is there a for example, Bracken ran a mile uh road race two weeks ago last I don't remember what it was. And it was really hot as well, about 90 degrees mm-hmm. midday. But like, is there some sort of like uh sweet spot where the, the heat really affects? I assume the longer you go, but like, is there like, what's the starting point of heat affecting you one second per mile?
2: Is it start at the mile? Does it, where does it end? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Like how long is it before? I mean, theoretically it starts right away, but you know, one factor we didn't put in there is also the humidity. The humidity and looking mm. at heat is one factor but i know a lot of times like when i go out and run what i do and this is kind of the poor man's version of it my wife's an athletic trainer and she uses something called like a wet bulb blow, uh, thermometer there where she actually goes out and it gives like a score based on heat and humidity and that's kind of the gold standard and in like high school sports they'll limit their participation if those numbers are too high And what I just do is my poor man's version of that is I take the temperature and the humidity and add them together. And when that's over 155, I know that I'm going to be struggling that day. I know personally, like for me, I'm going to be on the struggle bus if it's over 155 where I can see like I ran this weekend – and that combined number was like 168. I was like, "Oh, this is going to be fun," uh, and I was almost a minute per mile slower at the same effort. Now I just actually took a blood test, and my iron was low too, so that had a factor too. But it, it like there's a lot of things that go into that that make a, a big difference. Um, so humidity is another factor that we didn't really consider in the first part of the response about you know you need to have. A humidity factor in there too, because that's definitely going to affect your your breathing rate and oxygen delivery.
1: I'll do it. I'm go. I'm going. Get behind that.
2: Going. So, you never know if
1: you don't try, right? Well, and you know when you're, let's say you're a 14 flat 5K, and your goal is. It- it's different, but if you're yep. like a fifteen O guy trying to break fifteen, then it needs to be perfect, it's a different conversation, obviously. Yes. So, see that must seem pedestrian to you with some of the guys you work with at uh, with t- at Tim Mannilead, huh? The superhumans. Yes. Yeah,
2: they uh, they are superhumans, and and a lot of the pro runners. And that's yeah, it's funny because a lot of times people will uh, look at this. This is why we never say to like mimic pros. Um, Like I was talking to an athlete right before I got on here and he's like, hey, you know, he's got a race this Saturday. I just want to do a real easy jog. And it's like, okay, yeah, just go do seven at, you know, no faster than like 545 pace kind of thing. And like for him, that's just like a pretty easy run actually and it's a minute and a half plus slower than his 5k pace right if we run a minute and a half slower than our 5k pace it's it's a lot slower uh, than that you know he was mostly around like 6 630 for it there so he was he was going nice and slow and I was really happy with that but you do it to adjust and you start to think about it in relative terms of like well how fast is that compared to your actual performance times then people start to realize like no I'm not going to go out if I'm running a you know, a 14 minute 5K is, is also very fast. But if you're running a 20 minute or a 25 minute and you go out on your easy runs and you're 30 seconds slower than your 5K pace, that's where everyone gets in trouble. So but yes, they're, they are quite fast, yeah, superhuman with some of those things.
0: I'm sure we're going to get a lot of places today, but because in this present moment in time, we just had USA Championships, yes. we have Worlds mm-hmm. coming up you work with a whole bunch of people who are all sharpening peaking yeah. double peaking yeah. all of this right now so you said your wife's pt athletic trainer so i'm a i'm a physical therapist athletic she's an athletic trainer yes yep yeah. okay so between the two of you do you see the spectrum with the athletes at this high end some people that recruit every personnel under the sun to try to just get this machine through to the end. And there are some people just like winging it and eat McDonald's and doing all that like, with the teams you yeah. work with. Do you control everything or is it up to the athlete to determine how intensive we're going to be with our protocol here?
2: Yeah, that's a great question because it, it is the intangibles, especially when you're looking at um, like, I look at one of my athletes, uh, Drew Hunter, uh great guy very fast runner um you know was the mile record holder in high school for a long time there and just you know barely got uh uh, beat by hobbs kessler i think and it's uh, he was eighth i think in the 1500 and i want to say i don't know the exact time but he was around two seconds slower than the uh the winner of it there so you consider eighth and first like That it's a two second difference of making a team and not making a team and the Mm -hmm. more like the higher level you are competitive the more factors you do have to control where you have to look at that stuff and the difference between the elite runners and the professionals that i see the ones that are getting that extra little percent is are they doing those intangibles are they getting nutrition are they doing their strength sessions are they getting nine and a half hours of sleep what are they doing to make sure that they are doing everything in their possibility to recover as much as they can between workouts? And that's the biggest difference. And when somebody's not doing that, that's when they normally wind up with me, right? That's when like a lot of the runners will come out. If they're injured, they come out to my clinic in Delaware and they'll spend a couple of weeks and we'll get them rehabbed and, and get them back out there. Um, but if and i'll normally ask them like you know what have you been doing in the weight room what have you been doing here and that's when they really are missing that and you have to dial it in um you know are they getting enough calories that's the biggest thing i see with a lot of uh, recreational and professional runners is they're not getting enough calories in to recover well enough there which which can have a big effect on that too so we um we do have to control at the elite levels you really have to control as many of those variables as you can Um, but it's, it's hard. There are people too. And it's, it's hard to feel like everything you do is weighed or measured or under a microscope when Mm -hmm. it's nice to just go out and have a nice run and not think about it once in a while too. We have that leisure as recreational runners. Right. Nine and a half hours sleep. Did you say, did I catch
1: that right? That, That was the number you tossed?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Sleep is the number one performance enhancing activity we can do. Uh, and there are some studies looking at it. This is a kind of a soapbox of mine that I, we do a lot of. We like soapboxes, so go ahead. Yeah, all right, yeah. So we'll go into this a little bit. Because everyone, like a lot of times, people are always interested about training and they're increasing their training and they're like, say, hey, like right now we're at 12 weeks out from New York City Marathon, right? So a lot of people in eight weeks from Chicago. So we've got a lot of runners coming in and they're getting ready and they're saying, okay, hey, I'm, here's my training program. Here's what I'm doing. And then you ask a runner, okay, what's your recovery plan? What do you mean? Like you're doing all this increased training. What are you going to do to increase your recovery with this? And they're like, I don't, I don't know what you mean. And those things are so important. If your training is going up, 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 and your recovery is just here, you're not getting the same benefit from a lot of those activities that you could be. And if you get like ideally, hey, we're a lot of us listening to this and probably talking like we're not professional runners. We're not professional athletes and we have jobs and I've got three kids and, uh, you know, so I'm not getting nine and a half hours of sleep each night but Mm -hmm. if you're going to do increased training, you should really be focused on how are you gonna recover more? This is like part of my soapbox, that's part of it. Um, And then my other little thing, kind of food for thought that challenges some people once in a while is when does everyone eat the worst and like do the worst activities and stay up late? Normally on their like hardest workout day, on their like long run day or things, they'll be like, I can eat whatever I want today. And they go and eat like a Big Mac or something. Cause it's like, I just ran for 16 miles. I can do whatever I want. And I say, but yeah, that's the day that you need the most recovery. That's the day that you should be best mm-hmm. about making sure you're sleeping and eating really well. But everyone takes it as like a cheat day type thing where they can just go wherever and do whatever because they ran all these miles. It's like, yeah, well, if you want to get the full benefit of those miles, shouldn't you be really good about this and, and have like a recovery day? And you can have fun then, but do, you know, don't worry about it uh, or, or do worry about it when you're doing your hardest workout so that you recover your most. That's kind of my soapbox there mm-hmm. on – training and recovery and all that stuff.
0: Hmm, I like that. What's your take on nine and a half straight versus splitting it between a night and a nap? Hmm.
2: I I love the napping strategy actually, because it's nine and a half is not really possible for most of us. So a nap strategy is really good. And I think they found, uh, there was like a one study, I don't know, it's been a long time since I looked at that. I think around like 23 to 27 minutes is like an optimal nap. Uh, around that time and taking it, your body kind of knows what type of sleep you need. And it kind of goes right into whether you need some REM sleep or some light sleep, it jumps into it. But I think a nap is a, is a really good strategy. If you can find even, uh, you know, 15 to 25 minutes at lunch break or something, that can be a really effective strategy to to get a little extra recovery, too. Now, I've never seen, and this might exist, and I just don't know about it, um, but I've never seen a direct comparison saying, hey, you know, eight hours plus a 20-hour nap is equivalent to nine hours of sleeping solid. But it would that would be a really interesting study. I don't know how you'd measure the effectiveness of that, whether it's like heart rate variability or something like that. But right. um, mm. it'd be interesting to see, you know, nine and a half versus eight and a nap. It's, it's more efficient. But yeah, that's, that's an interesting
0: thought. The closest I've seen to that study was frequency and quantity of release of HGH and other things like that, yeah. where it's not like an IV drip throughout the night. There's a release and the nap prompts another release. So from that point of view, you can get more releases with more frequent bouts of mm. sleep. But I haven't seen the other side, which is quantity or quality of rest and actual Run. regeneration.
2: That's interesting about the HHS because a lot of times I tell runners that about what time they go to bed. Because my understanding of sleep um, is that the first sleep cycle is when the majority of the human growth hormone is released. And the further you go to sleep past 1030, the less of that gets released in your first sleep cycle. So going to bed earlier is often more effective. And then if you need to get something done, get up early the next morning to get it done. Like high school athletes, they pull an all-nighter studying for a test. You know, go to bed, get your sleep, wake up and study in the morning type thing. But that, that'd that be interesting to see a nap strategy. I mean, a lot of times I have my professional athletes, they do a lot of double workouts. Or they might even do like a long run in the morning and then they'll do strength in the afternoon and I always recommend that they have at least three to four hours between workouts and that if they can, they get a nap no longer than like half an hour though, because sometimes they get a little groggy if they get longer than 30 minutes. Um, so a lot of times I will recommend that they get that 30 minute nap in and try to get three to four hours in between, which normally is not a problem for most of us, right? We're normally spacing out more like eight, 10 hours if, we, if we're if we going to do a double workout there. Um, but. That's a, uh, that would be really interesting. Uh, I hadn't thought about it from a human growth hormone factor, but that that's a really cool part of that study. It is.
0: And it, it gets you thinking, okay, how do you, right. do you like, what's the yeah. cycle? Is If it takes 30 minutes to get it, would you get three, 10 minutes? Like right. you could see like some Russians being like, Hey, we're going to nap seven times a day yeah. Or, yeah. You know, or however it's going to be. Yeah. You go way down a rabbit hole with that. Four naps today here, you know, five minutes <laughs> yeah. a piece here,
2: but now I'm you know, ultimately recovered or jacked, uh, you know, depending on what your activity is there. So, um, yeah. Is there diminishing returns like strength training principles? You know, you, you get to like the fifth or sixth sets and you're really getting like only a marginal or if no real gains after mm-hmm. that. But if you take one nap, you get a significant gain. But after the second, it's like how much, like, I don't know how long it takes us to, regenerate human growth hormone in our body to release it, right? Like how big of a storage do we have of human growth hormone? Yeah. I don't even know, like maybe. Yeah.
0: What's your HGH refractory period? Yeah,
2: exactly. That, uh, oh man, that, that would be interesting. I'd love to talk to like a sleep expert about that. Those would be some great mm-hmm. questions for, uh, for somebody that really is knowledgeable on sleep and, and some of those factors.
1: Yeah, I would need to be on the uh, one Benadryl every four hours if I was going to participate in that study because there's no way I'm falling asleep four times a day. You kidding me?
0: Be tough. What you have all these normal people at home? Like, come on, <laughs> come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me I should do two naps a day? No way
2: is that happening there. What,
1: what is it they say though? If you are on your soapbox still, it's like, uh, if if you were to label sleep as like a performance enhancing drug, it's so powerful, it would absolutely be banned, right? Like, it's more powerful than absolutely anything oh, we yeah. could do as far as recovery and regeneration. I do think that's absolutely true. I went through a stint. Where I wasn't, I was boozing a, a bit too much and I was sleeping a bit too little. And when I cut all that out, um, I did, I trained it. I think I even trained less after I cut all that out, if I'm being honest. And my performance went through the roof. I mean, the fitness gains I saw in the first eight weeks, I was training less and probably less intensely. Yet I kept getting better and better and better. And most of it had to do completely with just sleep. I was, it's just sleep. It was just sleep. And, you know, yeah. the booze, obviously. But, Sleep was a big part of it, so um, we should probably properly introduce you, shouldn't we? Sure, yeah. <laughs> well, well, we're twenty minutes in. Yeah, we're chatting with uh, Doctor Doug, Doug Adams. You are an ambitious guy. D- Can we call you Doug? Do you call you Doc? What do you prefer? Yeah, Doug's fine. Yeah, yeah,
2: please. Doug, Doug is absolutely okay.
1: fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, you are the the CEO of Run DNA, which has a number of like um, talking points that I, we want to get into. And I am th- assuming right now you are in your. Your office, which would be the Omega project, like your physical therapy business, is that right?
2: Yes, yeah, that we've got offices across the hall from each other, so the physical therapy clinic is is right behind me, and then we've got kind of the manufacturing and research and development and everything kind of uh in front of me here, so all kind of in one space there,
1: okay, well, I chatted via email with your with your right hand gal who introduced me to you. And then I did some Googling, we'll call it, which everything you find on Google is true. And I was like, this guy is an ambitious dude that has is like a wealth of knowledge. And he's got, I mean, you're working with Tim and which right away, if that's all I knew, I'd be like, let's talk to this guy. And then we're talking like recovery from injury. We're talking gait analysis, why run economy is important. Then you have the whole physical therapy side of things that we, I mean, we could do 12 podcasts with you if we had to, but we're going to try to just do one. So... That's who Doug uh, Doug Adams is. I don't know. Did I miss anything
2: there? No, no, that's uh, I uh, normally describe myself as just a giant running nerd. I love all things running and you know runner myself and really have just been fortunate to make a career around it and built up to the point where i i'm lucky enough to to really work with some of the top you know both the military side of things and and the professional athletes um so never thought i would travel quite so much as a physical therapist and and do those kind of things but it it really is fun and i just get to meet lots of people that are passionate about running and i i think it's such a great sport and maybe the oldest sport known to man, but we're still learning so much about it every single day. And I think that means that like there's so much to it. And I love that there's always something I can learn about running.
1: You just said that like uh, we keep learning more and, and all these things. And, and I guess just a quick question on that, because obviously we're going to continue to learn learn about surfaces on tracks, learn about the most percentage increase we can find by making the perfect shoe, the training methodologies, Mm -hmm. all of that. Some of these high school kids right now, and even generally as like our American contingency, like we're seeing American records broken constantly. We got 30,000 kids going sub four in high school. It's absolutely unbelievable. What do you think it has to do with knowledge? I guess is what I'm asking. We keep learning. Is it knowledge? Or is it technology? Or is it both?
2: I've talked to the a lot of the Tin Man guys about this a lot, too, because we've had these conversations like, why why are high schoolers so fast right now? Like, what is going on that we're seeing a ton breaking for? We're seeing just, you know, records being broken and collegiate, too. I mean, a lot of the college runners are they're competing at the national level and are faster than a lot of the pros, even from before, like what happened in the last three or four years. And there's a couple things that they've talked about, a a few factors. I do think having access to knowledge is a big part of that, where people follow other people and social media has its, pros and cons but you're able to see what some of those other workouts look like but you're also able to see i mean i call this the roger banister effect right once you see that somebody able is able to do something it becomes more possible in your own head you're like oh yeah this person like Kurt, you know you're trying to run this if you if five people uh, that are 40 just ran in the 14s like message you after this you're like oh yeah there's a lot of people that do this like i should be able to do this this isn't mm-hmm. hard like you'll be more likely to that. So there, there is a mental aspect. I mean, the mental aspect of performance is huge. Um, yeah, I think you have to give shoes uh, a little bit of credit there, too, that they are running faster and maybe they're not breaking down as much with some of the new shoe technology. So you can do a really hard workout and get a really good stimulus from that, but not necessarily – have to take some time off, or you're not as sore, and you can run harder the next day um, because you've got less stress on the body. Um, I think it, it, the coaching community is definitely getting better and understanding that. I think there's a lot more access to knowledge there. Um, I think you know, especially at young ages, the the coaching and the training is such a huge part of that, and that's a, a really big potential benefit there so there's a lot of factors right where I just think um, then I've also heard the the talk about the COVID factor where kids kind of got a year or two off of of racing and they just trained for a while and they developed really good base and they weren't racing and then all of a sudden these kids that were like juniors and seniors after coming out of COVID it's like wow you didn't race for two years and then you know you just trained smart for two years and all of a sudden now you're running really fast so Mm. You know, it is interesting that there was a surge as we came back from from COVID and being kind of locked down. That a lot of these people that had trained really well and had been focused on it, maybe were doing some of those intangibles better that we were talking about earlier. They came on the scene and were just running fast. So th- there's a lot of factors involved in it, but it is a really fun growth period in the sport just to see how fast people are running right now. And a lot of people are running fast.
0: They are. It was interesting in high school. No, I'm from Wisconsin. Kirk's from Wisconsin. Uh, I was aware of Thomas Schwartz back in the day because I went to lacrosse for a semester, yeah. UW lacrosse, he was up there. And obviously, he was, for those listening, not familiar with this, he was part of the founding of Tin Man Elite and all that. Um, but back in the day when we were in high school, I was, Kirk, you were like, what, 2000? I was 01, 0- so yeah. I was 05. Uh, there was a bunch of people in our state that ran like 4 0, 402, 406, 408. And they just ran it under whatever high school coaching they had. Yeah. And then now it just seems like those people, if they ran four o as a sophomore, they found a Tom Schwartz. Yes. Or Tom Schwartz found them, or or you had like Warhorse uh, would find someone in Michigan yeah. and take them under his wing. But now all the coaches can find them online. Yeah. Like they their their coach finds Tom online and talks to him. And so these 402, 404 guys, what happens to them in high school is kind of what happened to Kirk and I in college where you're fighting for tents all through high school, you go to college and you open up your first meet faster than your high school PR. And you're like, what? This is all it took was just running more and doing big workouts. Right. And it's, it seems like they get that now before they go off to college. Yes. And that's, that's huge in terms of the high school times.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. I agree. Like the, and they're learning more of like, Hey, yeah, you need to be in the weight room and you need to, like you need to mm-hmm. put in the time and slow down on those easy runs and, but then run faster splits on your track workouts. Like people are just getting that information more. And I think it's, it's just, I mean, training is a huge part of that. I think the training, a lot of people, the first thing they'll say is the shoes like, Oh, cause they can quantify that mm-hmm. like 2% faster. Right. Uh, so 2% faster for a four Oh might be, uh, 350 something, you know, 359, 358. It's so there, there are, uh, other factors, but I think the training, it's just such a foundational thing that if you're not doing the proper training, right? Like you've got to, you know, why do all the other things too? You need to make sure that your training principles are really solid. That's what, Mm -hmm. like, that's my same argument for gait analysis and why gait analysis is so important and a critical factor in that. And my, like one of my missions, as a physical therapist and, and somebody that works with elite athletes is that everyone needs a gait analysis. Every single runner should 100% get a gait analysis. There's so much potential from it. It's such an important aspect that not a lot of people in the sport are doing, but it's leading to a lot more enjoyment in the sport, a lot more success in the sport. Uh, And it's, it's one of those things that, sometimes people don't always think about as that go-to tactic, but can really make those same kind of performance gains that we're talking about here from training, from strength training, doing those other intangibles.
0: Kirk, do you have some place you want to go right now with this? I do, but um, it's your show, brother you'd take it. It's not my show, but I have two burning questions I want to get to at some point. So I want to verbally earmark them for later. Well, what I would like to do, I actually want to pick up with what he was talking about. But first, I just want to slow
1: us down a second because we don't know anything about you, Doug. And I think it's important if we got like a quick just, uh, we're doing this really backwards here being 30 minutes in, but, um, a quick backdrop on who you are, where you grew up, how you got to be in this chair talking to us today. And like, uh, an extended elevator speech version. How does that sound?
2: Just so we understand who you are. Yeah, a little. Yeah, the background story. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I grew up in yeah in Delaware, um, and I early on I was actually really a swimmer to start, and then started playing basketball, and then I got into triathlons between sophomore and junior year of high school, and. First meet was like a regional meet, didn't even know it, but I won by like eight minutes or something. And they're like, oh, you're the regional champ. I was like, what's the regional champ? Like, what does that mean kind of thing? And then I found out that not many people showed up at that and didn't, nobody else knew he was a regional champ because I signed up for another race and and didn't win by quite that much there. So uh, I, I raced triathlons and had a whole series of injuries and things that just, I didn't, we didn't have access to those things. I read like the triathlete's training Bible was where I kind of just self-coached mm. myself and and went through that. And that was a great book. and loved it. But um, then really got involved in that. And then um, I went to Auburn University for exercise science undergrad. And then I went to University of Delaware for physical therapy school and in physical therapy school I had some really good timing because there were some of the world's leading researchers and running there, Irene Davis and Rich Willey, um, two big name running researchers. And then another mentor, um, Lynn Snyder-Mackler, who is, you know, and probably still is one of the leading ACL re, uh, researchers in the world there. So I got to do gait analysis with them and just be the lackey that was taking notes and writing things down and learning as much as I could. And I really loved it and continued to do some of my own research, um, even though the, some of those professors left and went to other institutions. And I kept doing some research and and got really uh, reliant or in, really enjoyed doing 3D analysis as part of some of these research studies. And I would bring my patients in to be part of these studies. And I would look at the 3D files and be like, oh, that's what they're doing. Like I can't believe I didn't notice that before, you know, I couldn't see that with my eyes. I couldn't see that with slow motion cameras and then you'd see it in 3d. So I kept doing gait analysis after my early part of my career, but I really missed that. Um, And I'd started, when we were doing the analysis, we started noticing these patterns when we were looking at runners where I don't think there's a perfect way to run, but I think there are some things that we do that we know contribute to injuries or loss of performance. And that we should really address those things because if we're not, every step we're taking might be slowing us down or or leading to injury. So we should really address those things. So we established these five main patterns of running gait that contribute to those injuries and loss of performance. And we started teaching courses about those called Certified Running Gait Analysts. And we got a really good response to those. We now we're at over ten thousand people that have taken those courses. And we've got, you know, that's for um, medical fitness professionals. You know, lots of different professions uh, take those courses. Even have some like coaching courses alongside of that, and a free course for runners. Like there's one called Essential Elements on our RunDNA.com website that people can sign up. It's just a free course to kind of learn about biomechanics and, and what some of those five categories are. So we did that, and then I really kind of missed having a camera system at my disposal. But camera systems were about two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars, and I did not have that kind of money sitting around. So just decided to build my own camera system, and we built a portable system. So then I started using that, um, and then we got some military grants. This was around twenty nineteen because running in the military is, is a big issue there. So we started doing some work with them. We developed an app um, that kind of went along with it so that you're not just doing a gate analysis, you're really giving people guidance on what to do. Um, and then we've been just developing from there and now we're in a bunch of, you know, uh, physical therapy clinics all over and running retail. And we've got a lot of different places that are, are using the camera system and it's, it's really fun. We get great stories of, of how it's made a big difference in people's lives. And so now um, that's run DNA, the company with there in 2018, I guess is when I, um, Started Omega Project, which is a clinic that's kind of the flagship to show how 3D gate analysis is a really viable business model, but a great way to help a lot of people too. That's kind of the the whole background story that that got me to to this chair here. That was good.
0: That was succinct, but effective. <laughs>
2: Thank you. Done it once or twice now at this point. Uh, they're kind of <laughs> used to a little bit of the background story there.
0: So my dad was an NFL quarterback. My sister plays professional basketball mm. and I'm a runner and obviously there are different worlds but in the first two worlds I just grew up watching this almost addiction to form optimization mm-hmm. everything is mechanics from how to sit under center to how to drop back from where the ball needs to be positioned in order to shorten the whip around on the backside. And you see it sometimes in NFL games. They'll show the pattern of where the the hand goes. And when it drops too low, it then has to come up too high. Like They are on everything. And with basketball, it's the same thing where everything how they're setting up they'll they'll tweak your finger placement they'll te- all right your ball's been sitting here but we're going to move it up a quarter inch on your palm for the final and you're releasing off this finger we're going to move to this finger and ev- every single thing are you a left right or a right left gather step all it is is nuanced form work and then the running world you have people that are form people there are people who are not form people and then people who say well there's a best form for you. And obviously the other sports don't amplify force Mm -hmm. changing it. There's not a real injury risk of changing your form for most things other than maybe throwing. And there is for running, but outside of that piece, the force amplification of doing it with someone else's mechanics that don't suit, doesn't suit your structure outside of that one piece. Why is running not predicated around the skill of running? Like, all ball sports are?
2: There's a really good, it's a great question. And I love how you worded it actually. And the uh, juxtaposition to other sports is really important. A lot of times I actually talk about golf versus running Mm. as an example of that, because how many people sign up for golf lessons? Everyone that plays golf at one point or another is like, I should get a lesson. But how many runners are like, I should really get a lesson about how to run? Nobody, right? It's a very small amount of the population that does that. So one of the reasons is that running is really hard to get feedback about how well you're doing it. So the only feedback we get is pace. Like, did you run fast or not? But pace has nothing to do, not nothing to do, but it's very little to do with the form Compared to other things, when you throw a football, for your example, right? You know, did you hit the target? How, what was your speed? It's what we call a discrete activity. So there's a definitive start and end to it. So you know you get immediate feedback. And for motor learning, which is how we learn to move, basically, immediate feedback is an essential component of that where you're learning to throw a football, you try or you know, shoot a basketball, like you said, and you're trying to move it up or release from a different finger, you're immediately gonna know, yep, that went in, or no, that didn't, or wow, I shot that, wow, I got a lot more power here, so I just banked it off the backboard here because I, I've got more power releasing off that finger. So you can make an adjustment. Running, it's not the same way. As soon as you are done one step, you go right into the next. And we have no feedback about how that step was. We don't know, is that a good step? We can't tell because it happens very quickly and it's high force. So you can't tell, oh, yeah, my knee collapsed in on that step. I'm gonna fix that. Because by the time that you had that thought, you're three more steps in. So it's really hard to make that. And that's why when we do the 3D analysis, we can identify that. And that's why we get so much aha moments. Because running happens so fast that people don't understand like, oh, wow, yeah, like I can make a difference in this. And there is some of that misconception that people are born to run a certain way and that we just, we find the most optimal running pattern for our body. Well, guess what? Our body only has short-term thinking. It's like, this is the best in this very second here, but it doesn't know we're going to run 20 miles that day. And that, that optimal movement now is not going to go very well when we start to fatigue when we start to run for a long time, it's just what is the most optimal movement in this second. So we can really optimize, and I like the way you put it, that there there can be an optimal form for a lot of people. And that's going to be different for everyone listening to us, the three of us on this phone. And And it's not just about your running form, it's about your flexibility, it's about your strength, it's about your Uh, you know what your body looks like you know we're all probably different heights and we're all different weights and uh, you know my leg my femur is different from your femur so we're going to see differences from that Um, but it doesn't mean that's why a lot of people get frustrated and they don't even start because they don't know where to go and they don't know what to do. And they think that's like, if you look at a picture of yourself running, this was a frustration I had in my career. I'd look at somebody running and be like, wow, you're like, your knees collapsing in, your hips dropping, your foot's rotated out. But now what we've done with these categories, and when we worked with the military, we added uh, an algorithm into the computer that analyzes it and tells us basically what the most important thing is to address because a lot of times if you address the most important thing, all of a sudden your hips not collapsing in and your knees not collapsing in and your posture is better because you're reducing the forces. So there is uh, unintended benefits that we see from that as well, but people don't know where to start and they just think it's too hard. So they don't get started at all. Sorry. That was a long winded response to it, but it, it, like, I really liked your question here and
0: went off maybe on another soapbox there. Really, all we do is long-winded on here. Oh, good. All right, perfect. <laughs> so this is very much normal and appreciated. <laughs> oh, that's my stuff.
1: Not that you're the gate analysis guy, so to speak, but it's a large part of what you do. So maybe you are the gate analysis guy. I don't know. Um, what is the 3D gate analysis like? Just so I have an understanding, and then I have a few follow-up questions about that. But. Um, could you just explain it a little bit, why that might be different than just setting up, like, Bracken will recommend, like, hey, videotape yourself running or run in the mirror and then look at it and see how it looks, right? Like, sure, there's some t- some talking points and some takeaways from doing things like that, but it sounds like that falls very short of what, like, a 3D
2: gate analysis would accomplish. So could you talk us through it? Yeah, and there's there's some benefits of two-dimensional gate analysis, too, right? Like, if you're going to look at it, I recommend people look at it from the side and, and see there's, there's probably about four or five different things that uh, you can reliably and you know pretty accurately look at with 2D gate analysis, but there's a lot more things going on with running and that's where the 3D really provides a lot more detail. Also looking at the interaction effect of, uh, if you look at just from one dimension, from one side there, right, you're gonna see a little bit, but what else is happening down up the or down the chain with that? So 3D analysis and the way I explain it um, is that It's like the same thing, just to give people an idea what it is, it's the same thing as you see for Pixar movies or video games. The people running around in the suits with the reflective balls kind of stuck all over them there, that's what it is, but we use it very targeted towards running. And what we're able to do is there's cameras that are uh, synced up to each other, so the cameras know where they are in relationship to each other. And if two cameras can see a marker that is placed on the body, they can determine the position of where that is by triangulating it. So when you have enough markers, there's different marker sets that are basically at specific spots on our body and are really able to show you exactly um, where the body is in space and what each segment is doing. So we can get information about what's going on at the hip, the knee, the ankle, the back. We can look at all of that stuff at once and not just looking at everything, but we're also uh, we're looking at velocities and accelerations, and there's lots of different things and information we get. Um, but with all that data, it's important to know what's actionable and what we should do with it there. So it's um, that's the a big difference between our 3D camera system and a lot of other camera systems out there is that a lot of camera systems will look at, uh, they'll give you a bunch of data, but it's like, well, what do you do with it? And that's why we put the algorithm in that says, hey, what we've seen, and we actually showed in the military, we took a group of just about a hundred people and we were able to show a 90 second improvement in their mile and a half time and no reported injuries. And the reported injury rate is normally 60% in the military. And, um, you know, 90-second improvement a lot of time. Are you staying in the military or are you getting on a bus and going home? Um, so mm-hmm. it was a big difference knowing what to do with it. So that's, that's kind of the basics of the 3D technology, um, that it's able to create a skeletal model of you in three dimensions and you look at everything at once versus kind of say, hey, I'm going to look from the side and I'll take another picture from the back and I'll take another picture from the front. Um, and then you're, you you can not see rotations, you can't see different things in, in different planes in the two dimensions, but it is good. Like I, I do, I always kind of say, Hey, if, if you don't have access to that, at least look at yourself from the side and pick out some things that can be really helpful. And, and you can make a big difference with that. You know, Brack and I agree, like, it like I like to just get my goal is to get every runner to get a gate analysis. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not possible to get every single person 3D, I like as many as possible, but um, two dimensions offer some value too.
0: So, with 3D, you're, you're using motion capture technology, mm-hmm. and does it strip it down to a stick figure
2: yes. initially? Yep, so it, it provides like a skeletal model of I it. I like that. Uh, you said you do or don't like that?
0: I do because there are people, there are savants. Mm -hmm. at picking out the biomechanics of the human body, right? People who can look at an athlete and say, you know, the the PT who, as you walk into a room says, I already know what's wrong with you. The the people who see things, some people say they do, but some people truly can see it, but musculature, body fat, what you're wearing really confuses the human eye to what's actually happening in the line segments underneath. And so I kind of really like the idea of the the stick figure motion capture stripping away because a 200 pound man and the 130 pound version of him with the same skeletal structure will look visually very different in how they run, even if they're running the same.
2: Yeah. Two, uh, two quick things about that, right? Cause I I love what you're saying there. So, um, have you ever heard it? I think it's called brain sponging. So what happens is our eyes see about 16 frames per second and they fill in all of the rest of the information. So if you think somebody's walking in and you're like, I see what's wrong with you before I even analyze, that scares me when somebody says that a lot of times. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, well, how does it look when I walk out, right? Uh, because if right. you've already made the decision, <laughs> then you're right and you haven't even looked, right? Um, but so that there's this brain funding where you can, you can 100% believe somebody is pronating, but they're not, right? The, the, that's not always the case here until you slow it down. And then along the same lines of with the skeletal model, here's a huge benefit of this, right? When somebody watches themselves, because you can sync our camera up to a high-speed 2D camera, and I stopped doing that for a while because I found it actually reduced the effectiveness of the 3D analysis. Because what's the first thing the runner is looking at? They're like, how do I look in those shorts? Or how does that look? Or "Is like, is that really me? But when they see that skeletal model, it is like, Oh, that person, their knee is way collapsing in. That's me? Oh, wow. All right, I need to fix that. With the skeletal model, people are much more likely to accept what you're showing them Because, I mean, the thing about 2D, the hard thing is reliability because unless you're setting up the camera and the tripod in the exact same place and they're running in the exact same place on the treadmill and it's the same height and it's the same speed and the same lighting, like that might throw off the difference. If you're two feet to the right, that's going to look entirely different. You're looking at a different plane of motion there. So the 3D cameras are always the same plane. The repeatability is much higher. And that, that skeletal model... Makes a, a big difference in whether somebody is accepting of that information or not.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
2: You don't give them those fun little sticky
1: things to put all over their body when they do it, though, do
2: you? Oh, yeah. No, we're putting the stickers all over them there. They look like, uh, you know, me mean, it was uh, yeah, okay. Great Instagram uh, reels there where people have the markers all over them. So we put, I don't think I have any here, right? but we put the little reflective markers with the stickers mm-hmm. and we put them on them. Um, and wrap them down there and do all those things, and that um because that's like because there's some markerless technology that they're trying to develop right now, but it's not quite there yet because they can't rely. We have so many different body types. The example you said about the 200 pound guy versus 130 pound guy, right? Like they're going to be very different body shapes, and it's getting better. But uh, if you ever watch a markerless capture, somebody says that they can take a 3D of you with their phone or do different things like that if you watch those the skeletal model is constantly jumping around and it doesn't look very smooth at all because it's constantly mm-hmm. trying to find the center of axis of rotation which is essential for accuracy with that so the marker based is the gold standard right now and i say it only take like the marines use this and they can do they can put the markers on in under two minutes right and most people are around three or four minutes but it doesn't take that long to get accurate data. Cause if you're gonna do 2D, like you're gonna spend at least three or four minutes looking at it. And then there is variability in gate. So if you look at somebody running in 2D, you can find a really bad frame and convince them that they're a bad runner, but that might've just been one bad step. That might not be actually what they look at. When you do a 2D gate analysis, you're supposed to look at five different frames. And most people don't do that at all. They just look at one and they say, oops, Yep, you're overstriding, or yeah, yeah. Look how much your knees collapsing in here on this one. But what did it do for the next five or the previous five? You have to look at that, and that's where the two or three minutes to put the markers on gives you way more value.
0: How difficult is it to get people to run normally rather than prancing for you and putting on their best form? Or can they not truly hide? They can't the
2: really hide it. They like they could. Tr- I mean, obviously, if somebody's really trying to trick you, they can. Um, but what we see i we kind of have uh like a delayed start even on it there where i always tell people so kind of like uh so my runner's coming in i'm going to give away my secrets here but i'll like uh, get them and i'll do a gay analysis like hey we got to warm up for a couple minutes which is true we need to have them kind of settle down in the forum as like, I'm just going to walk around a little bit and just observe, you know, and I'm like, I might go get a drink of water real quick or something and I'll have them running, but I can do a delayed start on the cameras. And you only need 10 seconds of data to get a 3D capture and to get all the information. So you can do multiples and I'll do it multiple times and I can see, Hey, are they really settled in for their form? But most people, you know, they're paying me good money to be there and get a gate analysis. I'll be like, Show me what you actually run like, because I can't help you if you if you're just trying to fake it. So, um, you know, show me what you really run like there, and and they're normally pretty uh, prone to to run naturally there.
0: Do you work under fatigued situations as well to see what your worst, what you're reduced down to, that's really causing trouble, or do you do you see that? it's going to just be a version of what we see fresh.
2: Yes, we did a lot of experimenting with that early on with the camera system where that was a question we always get. Well, it's like, well, but I don't feel pain until mile eight. So why don't we like, I need to run eight miles on this thing. It's like, no, that's (laughs) not actually the case here. So we did that a lot of times. So we would have people, we would do a gate analysis on them and say, all right, go run eight miles and come back and let's check the form out. And it was the latter of what you were saying where, what they're doing, it's just a little bit more, a few more degrees of what they were doing on the first step, right? So we okay. see that that the reason that you broke down at mile eight was because of how you were running for the first eight miles. It's not that you all of a sudden started doing something at mile seven and a half that led to it. You've been doing it the whole time, and there's a cumulative effect and your body's ability to compensate and to absorb the forces were then exceeded and then that is at the point at which you felt pain or started maybe noticing some differences in, in how you feel because of what you did at the beginning, not because your form is necessarily different. Now, uh, w- a slight difference, so if you've ever watched one of the uh, marathon, uh, professional marathoners and you're watching them on TV, pretty much every one of them overstrides at the end of the race. Well, they are all gonna like fatigue. There There is some fatigue components, but they're probably overstriding a little bit and then it's just they're doing it more and more and more as the race goes on. But if you watch, even you know, beautiful runners like Kipchoge is going to have their they're landing with that leg straight out in front of them, foot way out, um, just because there's a there's a certain element where you're going to fatigue out and and really see that it might uh, be a little bit of a hockey stick as opposed to just like a straight line there.
0: But that could be fitness, not mechanics. Yeah, that could actually,
2: Mm. yeah, absolutely. Where they're just, they don't have enough quadricep strength and they're going to just fatigue to a certain point and they're getting reduced, uh, you know, shock absorption capability and breaking through there. And then all of a sudden they break down at that mile eight or mile 25 on the, the marathon.
1: So to dumb it down for our listeners and for me, um an exaggeration of flaws just happens, you know, the flaw is gonna be there step one versus step ten thousand, and it's just maybe exaggerating as you fatigue, but it's the same flaw. It's not suddenly a flip switch when yeah. fatigue hits and it's a, it's becomes it's all it's there from the beginning, is what I'm hearing.
2: Exactly. Yeah, you're gonna just like see a- like a higher degree. If there's a two degree difference when you start, it might be a five degree difference when you're at that 10,000 step there where, but it's still the right is five degrees different from the left. Uh, That's what we're seeing there. The patterns are very similar in what we see for your movement, Uh, but it's easy to change those. Like we haven't talked about this. This is a big point I like to make too, is like when we do a gait analysis, they're changing right in front of me. Like my favorite thing to do with a gait analysis is we have these categories the computer tells you what category to do we teach them some cues it takes five minutes to kind of teach them a couple drills and you know slow running down and and teach them what we want them to do and then we get them to run and they look at you and you're like wow that's different they're like yeah it's different and it's like it feels different and then i'll ask them okay go back to your old way of running and a lot of times they refuse they're like no i can't run that way again Like I'll never run that way again (laughs) here because they feel the difference in it. And if they go back, you just see the pain on their face when they go back to running their old way. So it's it doesn't, we can make an immediate change and there's some factors in that right like if somebody has a lot of mobility restrictions or they're really uh, like flexibility or there's a lot of strength deficits there are some other factors about who can make a a, a quick change and how long it takes but then they just need to do about two or three weeks worth of exercises and drills and and specific retraining and and then they're really solid with that form and they can do that pretty consistently there on out we bring people back two weeks, four weeks, three months, six months, 12 months, and they're maintaining those form changes. And it doesn't take a whole lot of work. And it doesn't take a whole lot of maintenance. It's just you have to know and practice your form a bit to make sure that you know what you need to do. Because you can't just read a running article and say like, oh, yeah, I need to be at 180 cadence. No, you don't you're six foot five, like you're not gonna like run at 180 cadence, that's not for you there. Uh, and you might say, Hey, well, I can't make this change until I get my ankle looser. Like I, you need personalization. And that, that's what we teach in our Run DNA courses is just, we've certified all these providers throughout the country. Now, even the world that know how to personalize programs so that you're saying, Hey, here, you're going to do one ankle exercise, you're going to do this drill before you run, and when you run, I want you to focus on this. That's all you have to do, and you'll see a world of change with it. My, my favorite study, I think I quote this one a lot here, uh, is actually the study that said, if you can reduce the stress of each step by 10%, you can run twice as far before your body breaks down. 10% is really obtainable and easy to do. That is like no problem at all. And imagine being able to run twice as far before you got injured. That's an easy selling point. I think that's where we're missing some of the language right. in gait analysis and why people aren't going and seeking out a gait analysis because they think, well, it's too hard. I don't know what to do. And I'm just born to run this way. And that's all of that is false.
0: So what are you unlocking more? And maybe unlocking is the wrong term, but I feel we've had some people on here before who are very big on, form overhaul, mm-hmm. but they seem to be selling that there was a, there was a health component to it, but they were selling speed more. Yeah. So are you, do you focus more on unlocking sustainability and durability and health, or are you truly finding like there are quote unquote, that mythical free speed? You're just like, Hey, there's more speed just fell out of me. Right. We look at it from really
2: two factors, right? Cause there, there is a performance component to this, but that's from the running economy side. So if you're running with improved form, you're going to have to activate less muscles to achieve the same speed. So therefore you could run faster or further before you run out of energy. So there is a performance Mm -hmm. component of that. Like we kind of quote, like we went to Chicago marathon last year and we did a hundred gate analysis in two days. I was exhausted. I literally like went home and felt like I just went on a binger of like drinking like a 24 pack of beer or something. I felt horrible there just because we were exhausted. But we put a sign up that said, save nine minutes on your next marathon. And that really is true because if you're around a four to 4:30 30 marathoner and you increase your running economy by two to 3%, you can save that nine minutes on a marathon by running more efficiently. Now, what that means is that you're going to be efficient at the pace. You're not all of a sudden going to be able to run. It's kind of the same thing I say about the the shoes. It's like, hey, you're not all of a sudden going to be able to go from running six-minute miles to running five-minute miles by putting these shoes on, but the six-minute miles aren't going to hurt that bad, and you might be able to sustain it for a longer time. It's not going to take Mm -hmm. you as much effort. So you can see some, some definite improvement in performance, but the flip side, and even tying that back to performance, is that health factor right there's a Bertelson 2017 article that puts a really good theory of why people get injured and they say basically that people have a series of risk factors um, that are individualized and then they participate in the sport to a degree at which their structures capacity is exceeded so layman's like what that means basically is hey we all have things that are personal about us right factors that are good and factors that are bad but you run enough cumulatively, you're going to experience some injuries. And one thing I tell people is that running injuries have a four to six week delay. So what you're doing now, you might not think you're changing something, but in four to six weeks, it's going to happen. Because unlike the football, you know, your dad playing football, he gets tackled by a linebacker. Like that happened all at once, right? You run and you're getting little damage time after time, step after step. And it's just you know, a thousand paper cuts, right? You're just slowly getting broken down. So the my thought and, and something I work with my athletes and something we've seen with the professional athletes that I work with a lot too is that, well, what's the number one way to get faster? Consistency. If you can build and if you're not sitting out for four weeks, like, you know, I've got a number of high school, really talented high school runners in now and, and you know, The ones that are not running and getting their base training in for cross-country season because they're injured, they're at a disadvantage, and that's going to affect their performance. You have to be consistent and realize that running goals aren't measured in days or weeks or more like measured in months and years, and you need to have the consistency. And if you can show up at those runs, your long run, your track workout, whatever you're doing, healthy and ready to go and consistent, you'll see that steady progression, right? It's not 1% a day. It's it's a little different than that, right? It, there's ups and downs, but um, if you're putting that effort in every day, that's the number one way. And that's where the gait analysis can really offer a reduction in injury risk uh, and improvement in performance kind of simultaneously because it it's going to help you to just be consistent with it. But there's not like magic speed. I mean, I we have had some professional runners that we do a gait analysis on and then they set like a, 10 second pr the next day just because they were significantly slowing themselves down it, like there are big factors of that but you know that's not a like a guarantee i don't want to make it like a claim oh yeah come on i'll take like right. yeah oh, Kurt, come by like you want to get that that you know that sub 15 like just come fly out to delaware here like i'll just do a game and fly home you got it no problem uh, that's not quite how it works. But there you know, there can be definitely a, a performance aspect of it.
0: Kirk, we've said it before. The greatest ability sometimes is just availability. Yeah. And I suppose maybe it was the wrong question. Maybe you can't disjoint durability and health from free right. speed.
2: Well, it is funny though. This is a saying. I've been saying this a lot recently. Um, health and fitness are not synonymous. They are not the same. Hmm. And there are a lot of people that sacrifice health for fitness. And when you do that, fitness is fleeting. You will lose the fitness eventually because of injury. So if you short term really want to make a big fitness gain and you sacrifice your health for it, it's not going to last. And there's so many people that cross a marathon finish line that are not healthy at all, but they had great fitness and they had a great race. And then they're not going to be able to run for the next three or four months because they destroyed their body getting there. So health and fitness are not synonymous, but they need to be equally weighted. They need to be prioritized at the same point because you really you can't have fitness without health.
1: Yeah, and I think for most of our listeners, like our human, we're all humans, not these freaks on Tin Man Elite, so to speak. Where um, I think almost everybody listening wants to be able to run more, and there's a limiting factor, whether they claim it's time or they can't handle the volume or yada yada. My calves always act up. It's like really the limiting factor is the ability to probably put in the time needed to be better, and most of the limiting factor is injury, right? So who cares if there's free speed accessed immediately or not? I think anybody listening to this podcast understands running is indeed the long game, and so staying injury-free is obviously leading the way as far as getting better. Um, I want to ask you, you don't have to give away your secret sauce, of course. However, the big question is, like, what do you – what do you do with the data and we don't need to get too detailed but could i throw you like two scenarios and then you just give me like just the tip of the iceberg would that be fair i'm like what would somebody do
2: Sure, right. yeah, yeah go for
1: it. let's talk about two examples let's talk about bracken or myself we're just bull-legged old men if anything our knees are out just a little bit we're a little bull-legged the way we run isn't necessarily beautiful but it's not ugly but we're we're definitely not as fluid as let's say Hobbs kessler for example or drew hunter and then you have the other end of the spectrum which is the
0: knock need i might be more fluid than drew hunter yeah, yeah it's true actually <laughs> that's true um <laughs> Hobbes kessler <laughs> no way doesn't matter that he's in way faster.
1: You got the bull-legged type. Let's call him the supinator, potentially whatever. I'm using very non-specific terms here, and I'm sure you can eye roll a, a little bit at this. And then let's say the knock-kneed pronator with the legs kick way out and they slap the floor, the ground with their inner foot. Let's say so two examples: bull-legged and the opposite knock-kneed. And you know it's very obvious. What would you do with each of those examples? Like would be like blanket, quick tip
2: of the iceberg advice. So um yeah we um the good examples right but we uh really look for the personalization because just like having a specific body structure is not necessarily mean that you're going to move the same way right so just because you're it doesn't mean that you're not going to have some collapsing in right or that you might not have right. like you might have a different compensation you might have hip drop because you're not absorbing maybe as much uh, at the knee uh or the hip like you might have where your hips are shifting to the side so we we really address it i mean my answer like the cop-out answer is like i'd do a gait analysis on you and i would follow the (laughs) algorithm of of what the algorithm tells me there even though i made the algorithm probably the right answer yeah i i think that like but it's a good point that it's just like there isn't a um there isn't a just a one size fits all solution necessarily for some of that stuff because you're both going to run very differently and you're both going to have some things. Now we could say, Hey, I would love you to both start maybe some marching drills and maybe have you like learn how to properly drive. Or there's some things like, you know, do you have a good forward lean angle? Are you, if you have a reduced capacity to absorb some of the forces, let's reduce the forces acting on your body. So let's make sure that you're like a really easy thing to check. Like one of the five categories that we talked about is an overstrider. So an overstrider, there's not a strict hard definition of what that is, but basically a good way to see if you have overstrider tendencies is if you take a picture from the side, directly from the side, and if you draw a line from your ankle bone straight up, and if that line goes in front of your knee, then you're overstriding at least at some point in your gait cycle there. So I would maybe say for somebody that is uh, in the bow-legged example, that's a supinator that's landing, and uh, we know when they land in that supinated position on the outside of your foot is, is another way to say that. Um, that is a more of a force generator than a force absorber. So that person needs to reduce the forces acting on their body. So I would address maybe over mechanics for that person if I saw it. Now, somebody that's more knock-kneed and that is having more collapsing mechanics, we call that, where the knees are coming in. Um, this is a good example of why we need personalization. Why is that person doing that? Because we give this example in our courses. They're seeing, if you look at somebody and their foot's turning out, their knee's coming in, and their hips are dropping, what's the assumption most people are going to make about that person? Oh, they're weak right? Their glutes are weak. They can't control it. They're losing against gravity. They're weak. But what if in the flip scenario is that their ankle's really tight and then they can't dorsiflex where they kind of bend that ankle up to absorb forces. So they have to turn their foot out. And when they turn their foot out, that means that their knee's more likely to collapse in. So you're going to strengthen this person's hip and think that you're going to help them stop being knock-kneed when in reality, you need to be stretching out their ankle and working on their joint mobility Mm. because there's a reason that they're doing it so the whole point of what we teach and the reason that we've certified so many of these providers uh which shameless plug there's like a list this doesn't help me it it helps them but uh, there's a whole list of our providers on RunDNA.com. if you go to the community page i saw
1: the map and they're uh they're all over the place in the U.S. We got one here in the Minneapolis area, I saw.
2: Yeah, you actually, you've got a 3D gate analysis right near you in Minneapolis, too. Um, superior yeah. running medicine there. Um, oh, there so, you yeah, go. you've got one. Uh, yeah, there you go. You can go pick up that sub-15 there and just go, uh, go get your free gate analysis there. Go get a an gate analysis.
1: I'll go in for the gate analysis Tuesday. And then I will run that race Wednesday. Yeah. And it's like a magic bullet, right?
2: Magic bullet. Yeah. Yeah. You may be in the 13th. It'll counteract the yeah. heat. It'll counteract, counteract the, heat. the heat. Yeah. You can at least what uh, started the conversation.
0: But you're going to have to nap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have I to can nap. do it, it. A
2: little human breath right. on there. Yeah. <laughs> Just sprinkle yeah, it. Yeah. There you go. I like it. Stir it around. Yeah, so that's a little. I don't know if I fully answered your question, but I kind of um, redirected it a little bit about the need to personalize.
1: Well, no, you did, and and I know I was a. Du- it's a du- it's a dumb question. It's a flawed question because everything is customized. I think what I was more. Here's the thing. Some of the gate experts and quotes we have talked about. It's like, hey, let's get your cadence up to 180, and we'll look for a few simple cues. And it's the same old 180 bullcrap based on one study done on elite level athletes. Four hundred years ago, whatever the crap right. that is based on um and so you hear that a lot it's a default thing and then everybody asks a million, all, we bracket and I both coach we hold a roster of athletes we're endurance coaches that's what we do and as soon as you have that conversation then you get half your athletes going i checked my cadence and it was one sixty five and I'm a failure and now I need to get it up to 180 and it's like an eye roll worthy conversation. I see you just rolled your yep. eyes actually as I said that um which is fitting. So I guess you've probably talked, um, you've talked enough about, about that component. Like, okay, there's no right cadence for anybody, but I think the only thing maybe I'd be looking for is an example of some cues that maybe you're running down the street. Like for example, people who get really internal when they're, when they're fatiguing and their arms cross their center line and they start looking at the ground in front of them. I said a simple cue, like pretend there is a string coming out of your chest and it's pulling you towards the distant building in the horizon Mm -hmm. or an up treetop to keep you upright and like you're getting pulled from your chest. For example, that would be a a visual or a, a cue that I've given athletes and like, Oh my God, that helped keep me open when I wanted to get internal when I was suffering, for example. So maybe like, I think I was just curious about if there's like some cue, like a cue or two, like as an example, you'd be like, oh, these are things that I tell runners to think about sometimes. Like, is there anything like that?
2: Yeah, there's I mean, there's tons of cues that we use. That's actually what we teach in the courses. Right. We just go through I think we have a 45 minute lab session in the course where we just like show people all these different drills because they resonate with runners in different ways. So you need to have a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Like I've got five different cues that can work on it. Like the posture one that you were talking about, the string that you say, Mm -hmm. I tell them to have ski jumper posture because a lot of people have seen the Olympics and they've seen the skis. And when you lean forward, the lean doesn't come from the waist, it comes from the ankles. So we will tell them like, have you ever seen a ski jumper, right? You want to be that ski jumper because a lot of people will cue people to run tall and then they're kind of sitting backwards and it's almost like they're throwing a parachute out to stop them as they're just like leaning back. We call that a glute amnesiac. Um, so what we look at, I I will give somebody the cue of like lean forward, like a ski jumper. And they kind of understand that, that they need to maintain a good posture as opposed to bend at the waist or stay tall. So there's tons of different cues like that. Um, a simple one instead of cadence a lot of times we'll tell people even hey imagine that you're running if you're up in at where you guys are snow is a factor right imagine you're running on ice get your feet off the ground a little quicker right because when your feet are on the ground that's when things happen so instead of changing somebody's cadence we might say hey let's actually like try to change your posture and your mechanics like get the foot off the ground faster. We'll get them to drive their knee a little mm-hmm. bit more. There's like cues. I tell people sometimes imagine they're on a skateboard, right? Like if you overstride on a skateboard, what's going to happen? You're going to tumble right? Like you can't stick your leg way out in front of you when you're doing something like a skateboard. You're going to be scooping and like bringing back as opposed to landing way out in front of you and causing that braking force. So there's, I have brought my kids scooters in for athletes at times. They're, they're like riding on these scooters are a little small for them and they're like getting the pattern down. It's like, okay, yeah, I gotta, I gotta do that. I gotta get my foot off the ground. It's that's you know, to go back to part of our earlier conversation of basketball versus and throwing versus running. There, it's like we have to give people ways to experience what we're asking them to do. Because one thing we haven't talked about so far is, hey, guess what? Strengthening doesn't change form. That person that we talked about that has um, you know the the collapsing in the valgus kind of position there, you can't just strengthen that person's hips and expect them to stop collapsing inward. It doesn't work that way right you might give them more capacity that they're not going to get injured by collapsing inward because they can handle more force but strengthening and motor are two different areas in the brain and you can't strengthen somebody and expect their form to change so you have to incorporate drills and gait retraining into a program now the strengthening is still important i'm a huge proponent for strength right? Like with 10 man guys, I put them all on a bunch of strength. We're doing heavy weight with them. We got them in a weight room, taught them how to lift. Like that was a big part of their performance improvement plan of of doing the actual strength training. And, but it didn't change our form. We still did all of the other things here. We had to focus on form. We had to get them drills. We have to practice our running. I, I always say running is one of the only sports we don't practice. We just train. It's like if basketball was always five on five and that's all you did was you just train, you just played, you might get a little better, right? And you're going to get better shape and you're going to do that, but you're not learning the drills. You're not improving your hand position. You're not improving release angle. It's, and why should running be any different? Running is one of the most highly skilled activities that almost everyone on the planet does. So we should be working on it
0: and actually doing,
2: form and technique as part of that run practice
0: so with form then you talked about i think you said five major cues mm-hmm. that you guys are and i think there's a hierarchy to them yes from a visual standpoint we want you brought drew Hunter yeah. up mm-hmm. kirk drew runs in a funky mm-hmm. visual and then you look at someone else in the race let's say matthew Centrowitz, and he looks like he's marching yeah and then you might look at Let's say Evan Yeager, who didn't compete this past weekend, but he looks like he's trying to spend as much time in the air as possible in between every stride with this beautiful, long, flowing back kick. And then you look at the stereotypical African uh, female marathoner who looks like her hands never come below her collarbone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you have all these different things, or the the Japanese runners who... stereotypically have very little back mm-hmm. kick at all it's very low like churning over quick yeah. cadence using almost the whole foot like speed walking almost and you have all these things that visually strike us as that can't be efficient so how how does that compare to your five bullet points of what actually Right. is going incorrectly and what are those things that don't matter but look visually jarring?
2: There are five things, right? And you brought up really good points, right? Because you brought up five very different runners that are very successful with that, right? So what we see is the five categories, all right, we'll go to that first and then I'll kind of respond to the rest of the, the question there. So the five categories kind of in order of, of importance and, and in uh, frequency that we see them. Overstriding is probably the most common thing. The foot lands too far in front of the body. We talked a little bit about that. Collapsing is the second thing. That was the other thing we talked about. Knees are collapsing inward. You look at their knees are touching. They're going to the side. I call it the ponytail sign. The hair's whipping around. Obviously not. You know, Breck and I, we're 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 not uh, in that group there. But um, yeah, the ponytail sign. We're seeing that.
0: Um, then after that collapsing, a lot of times we see what's called a bouncer. Sorry, can I stop you? When you say collapsing, are you referring just to knees or any junction point?
2: Any junction at the point. So that could be at the ankle, that okay. could be at the knee, that could be at the hip. Um, it's just you're losing what we call, We not too much technical jargon, but you're losing the frontal and transverse plane battle, right? So you're losing um, the mechanics from the side and from, from the top, like rotating there, you're losing some of that. Um, but it can be at, at any of the joints there because uh, they're all kind of in series a lot of times too. You'll see one and then it'll be a chain reaction. Mm-hmm. So then the the bouncing is the person that we see excessive vertical oscillation. So the runner said, hey, yeah, we're way up in the air, right? They're, they feel like they're going high. Um, and then we see the glute amnesiac is a person that's leaning back, right? And they're kind of way leaning back and that re- creates a mechanical disadvantage, uh, for certain areas and an advantage in others. You're relying less on your glutes and you're relying more on quadriceps in that position. And then we see also the weaver is somebody that lands with a very narrow base of support. So they're landing, and this is somebody that maybe has a lot of IT band issues or lateral ankle pain. And there's lots of different ones there that, that make a, a impact on that as well. So, um, we see those five, and a lot of times people don't just fit into one of those things and like we said in the beginning when we started talking about gate there's not a perfect form you look at some, drew right drew and i have done hundreds of gate analysis right we've worked on a lot of things and the goal is not to make somebody perfect the goal is what is the low-hanging fruit that we can get that 10 percent improvement what can we do to change just a little bit because if you look at drew's form two years ago versus where it is now. We do see a difference. You look at the angle of his shin when he strikes the ground now versus two years ago, it's different. And did everything change? No. But that change and that allows for an improved mechanical advantage that Drew hasn't, you know, I'm going to knock on wood here, but Drew hasn't had a major musculoskeletal injury going on 12 months there where his early career was plagued by a lot of those things. So we can allow him where we don't have to be optimal with it. We have to just make sure that they're doing the basics really well. Uh, Reed Fisher is another great example of that. I don't know if you've seen Reed run a lot of people look at Reed's running and they're like, wow, how is he a two hundred nine marathon guy? Right? Like, but if you look at his posture, when he lands, he has perfect mechanics. Like if you look just like right where his foot lands in relationship to his body and the angle of his shin and the angle of his body, he is like, Perfect, and he is a machine. He has very low variability in his gait. He is just repeatable, he doesn't break down, he doesn't fatigue as much as people. He is just, so we don't mess with his form too much because he does some of the basics really well. And now, hey, to get him to be a 204, 203, we're gonna maybe have to look at some of those other mechanics and address some of those things that people notice and just kind of look at and be like, yeah, there's something different about his form like, what should I do? And and when they're ready for that, but we stage these things and we address them and say, Hey, like drew, we, we just need you to be consistent with running. And if you can just train for a solid 18 month period, yeah, you're like, you're going to make a team next year. He's coming, he's been in the gym. He's been doing this. He's back to, you know, close to his 1500 meter PR, which he was way off before. Cause he's not having the injuries. So you change the form, you get them in the weight room, you focus on some mobility. It's not perfect, but it can make a big difference.
0: I didn't hear you mention the arms one time.
2: Yeah. Um, So arm swing is important. We don't measure the arm swing actually in 3D because it's uh, it's pretty apparent what somebody is doing. Unlike the lower body, you can see easily like, hey, somebody's crossing over easy to see, right? Um, So the arm swing does have an important aspect of that. And I do think that is important, right? Especially up to about, uh, there's some different mechanics up to about four-minute mile pace or so, anything faster than four-minute mile pace. You know, a simple cue we use a lot is, hey, push the elbows back more. The elbow, you're not – like a lot of people are, are making mistakes of um, really bending and straightening the elbow a lot as opposed to kind of pushing backwards. Well, one of the cues – I actually were asking about cues and things that people can do. Um, so, you know, that's one of those things actually – like, Kurt, I have a lot of people – I'm one of the few people that collect paper towel rolls. Like when you're done a roll of paper towels, I never throw out the paper towel roll because I use it for two different cues. And one of them is for your arm swing. So if you hold a paper towel roll, one, you know that you're not gripping too hard, which is a mistake a lot of people make. But two, if you're crossing over, you're going to jab yourself right in the face. And you're gonna know, oh, oh wow, <laughs> that was not good. Uh, so you, those are actually a, a, an example of how we use external cues, where instead of saying, "Hey, bend your elbow more or less," you're saying like, "Just hold on to this and don't hit yourself in the face." Those are simple cues that people can visualize and accomplish, as opposed to like the overstrider. You know, I didn't, I never told Drew Hunter like, "Bend your knee more when you land." That would go horribly. right Right? but we that's what we wanted we needed him to land with his knee in a little bit more bent position so that his shin was vertical so that he was slowing down his braking forces there with it so that's uh how we design some of those cues but we have to individualize it to, to people based in c and we stage it too where we say all right hey listen drew you know you're working on this and eventually we'll get you to be able to lean forward more and not be as upright and we can work on those different cues but those things you know, do take time. And we, we, it's, it can be fatiguing to always be working on some of those things. A are professionals. It's their job. Um, but we stage those things mm-hmm. most of the time for the rest of us.
1: Well, we have about five minutes left and I want to be respectful of your time because I know we planned on 90 minutes today. So I wanted to kind of head us one quick direction, Bracken, if that's cool. Do it. Um, because we could do this for hours. Uh, not many people we've talked to have had the chance to work with so many high level professional runners, and your work with some of the athletes at tin man elite um is something i could i could could ask you questions about you know uh for a long time but Could you just outline a little bit like what are some of the things or habits you've seen or learned from some of these top end pro athletes, either one that surprised you or two like everyday Joe Schmo who's listening to this podcast isn't doing? Are there any habits you've picked up on? Like what are the pros doing that we aren't,
2: so to speak? Is there anything jump out at you? That's a great question. Some of the things, I mean, I think we've hit on some of them about the consistency and never missing like those guys. There's no question that they're getting their run in. It doesn't matter what the weather is. It doesn't matter, you know, what's going on. They're if they're traveling, they're like they're going to get their run in. There, like there's zero excuses for that. They are they are doing that. The consistency, especially the amongst the higher performing professionals that I worked with, and even profe- you know because now I work with even you know non tin men and elite athletes just on different teams and, and other ones, and I've seen. Um, that really consistency is key with that and patience. And I think think one of the most underrated things that I notice is the confidence and the mental aspect of the performance of knowing that, like, hey, I can go out and do this and knowing that, you know, there's no one workout that's going to make or break me here. Like they – they are really out there. And I, the other thing, I've had this question before, and one of the things I, I've answered to it that I also really like is they're coached, right? That's the biggest difference is they're not the ones making the decisions about some of those things. They're focusing on just executing the workouts, and they're letting somebody else kind of have an external view. And I think if we go back to some of the differences in the sports that we've talked about, right, there's a coach for every NFL, MLB, NBA player, WNBA player, like all those people have coaches. And I don't know why runners are so hesitant or feel like they don't need a coach or somebody that's looking out. Even if it's just somebody that you meet with once a month or giving you things, like they're coached and they listen to their coach. And I think that's really important. And I think that's another area where we could see a lot of reduction in injuries and improved performance if people were just more likely to to go and, and get coaching. Because it's like we all think we can self coach ourselves all the time, but a you know professional runner they've got plans, they stick to it, they know what they're doing, and their coaches are giving them feedback. And they're not the only ones making the decision. There's a team. I mean, I spend hours every week talking to the guys on the team and. You know, talking about modifying programs and with the coaching staff, it's there's a lot of thought that goes into that. And I think we could all do a little bit more of planning. Uh, at the minimum, write your plan down. At, you know, at, at an even better thing would be to, you, to get a coach to help you write a plan down for you uh, and working together. I think that would be a huge benefit for the sport as well.
0: Yeah, there's no Hal Higdon's guide to a golf shot. Right. <laughs> Runners can buy a template yeah. or find it in the archives on Reddit of how to train for anything that's been verified by no one that is yep. good for you. Yeah, and that's the difference. We for, I I think I think we forget how skillful the sport is.
2: I 100 percent agree. Yeah, it's a highly skilled movement,
0: and I think I'd lump myself into that. I think I we all forget how skillful it yes. must be.
2: Absolutely, and you need coaching and help for that. And running is a low cost sport like there's not a lot we spend money on right like some nutrition and some shoes you know you can get a lot more enjoyment out of it if you invest a little bit to make sure like get a gait analysis get a coach do those things like i like our company mission statement for run DNA is 100 happy healthy like we want people to live to be 100 years old but happy and healthy when they get there that's what that's the reason our company exists and we feel like running is a great way to get there that's that's the way that we are meeting that that goal is saying Hey, imagine if the whole world like ran a mile a day. What would our healthcare system be like? What would you know, I'm getting a little philosophical mm. now, but like it it there's running is such a great sport and activity. Invest a little bit in it and get a whole lot more out of it too. I, I think people if you're if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right too. And maybe you do just want to run five miles every day and that's absolutely fine, but um you know there's there's more to the sport and there's more benefit to get out of it too
1: well i know you got a role um do you want to uh just quick uh plug for run dna or if people want to get some help from you or seek out experts that are certified any of that uh could you just Tell us about that real quick before we sign off.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so social media wise, um, Instagram is run DNA system uh, at run DNA system there. And we post a lot of exercise videos and, and do a lot on there as well. Um, I, the run DNA.com is also a wealth of information there. We have, um, we have a V dot calculator. We've got blogs on like all those topics that we talked about today. There's a lot of like, full post written out about a lot of that stuff. And the find a provider, I think is one of the things that we just redid our website not too long ago. And the find a provider was a huge thing because I think we just need more people with more access to qualified professionals. I think some of what we talked about, if you go to a physical therapist sometime that's not familiar with working with runners, and they just go in and say, well, yeah, stop running. Well, that's the end of the story, right? That's the end of the conversation. No more. Uh, but these, this group, you know, we've identified people that really want to work with runners. And that's a, a big difference there. So um, find, go on to rundna.com. See if you can find it. There's a free course, too. So if people like this conversation... If you want to know a little bit more about the five categories and what that means what biomechanics and muscle activity, we put together a free course um, that you can go. We're just trying to give back to the running community that's given us so much there. Fantastic.
1: That's great. And and everybody, um, as far as uh, the uh, Omega Project, that would be a local – your current clinic, that would be more of a local
2: uh, thing versus spanning. We we have people travel – uh, yeah, people travel in, like, at least a couple times, like, once a week or so. We have somebody coming from four or five hours away. They come in, and, uh, like, the professional athletes a lot of times will come in and spend a, a week or more or even a month or so with us trying to get back healthy um, if people are plagued by some of that stuff. Um, but, there, like, we are getting more and more 3D sites out there, and there's, there's more advantage, and we've trained people. You know, we just, my, like I said, my goal is just everyone get a gait analysis. Just go check out your form. Get it. Get it looked at. Like, see if you can do that, and, and then work with a coach that can help you with your training. Um, that, that's about the I think uh, the best we can offer, and, and really a, a lot of value. You'll you won't regret investing in yourself and in your sport in that way.
1: And the last question: Exactly where are you located? So, for some of our some of our listeners who are in your neighborhood that might want to reach out to you, uh, where exactly are you? We're in Wilmington, Delaware.
2: So that's uh, we're basically a suburb of Philadelphia. Um, so we're 20 minutes south of the Philly airport. Um, and, uh, it's a nice little area. Actually, we got a ton of trails and there's a lot of good running actually around here. Um, but it's, uh, it's a good place for that. And so we're Wilmington, Delaware, if, if people can find that on a state, but not a lot of people know people from Delaware. We're a pretty tiny
0: state. Thank you. Doug, I enjoyed this. Yeah.
2: Likewise. Yeah. Yeah. Bracken, you know, really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you. This is a fun conversation and, and really good, uh, insightful questions here. I like it. I like the wording on some of the questions too. So that, uh, it's some different ways of phrasing it than I've heard. And I really like the perspective. So uh, and Kurt, good luck on your race too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I'll I'll need it. I'm going to be napping. I'm going to be napping in the lead up.
2: Napping in the lead out there. Now I want to hear how you do. So you're going to have to message me and let me know here uh, if if you break it. So um, good luck with it. Hope for for some cool weather for
0: you. It was nice meeting you. Thanks for sharing your time with us today. Thanks for having me on.
2: Yep. Appreciate the time.
0: Yeah. Thank you. See you later. Bye.